0: Or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Why don't you guys grab a seat? People are uh, a very interesting species. Uh, humans, all of us. Well, I hope I hope I'm interesting, but um, there's if not sorry for the next half hour. But uh, we're, we're a fascinating species. There are a lot of tendencies we have and things we do. Um, One thing that I've observed, and I think it's a really common thing, when it comes to argumentation or tension or, uh, you know, rivalry or competition, there's this tactic that as humans we often resort to, and what that is is that we kind of reduce the argument to smaller foundational arguments in an attempt to deconstruct the whole. So I'm going to say that in less of a run-on sentence and maybe a little bit more simply, but what we often do is when there's tension or rivalry or a fight, Rather than philosophically try to take on the whole thing and, and, and create a case for that, we often take on like bite-sized arguments that attack at the foundation, usually of the other person that we're in tension with. This happens personally. like If you're angry with someone or frustrated with someone or you're having an argument— a lot of the times, you know, you don't sit down and draw like a big kind of systematic philosophical view of what's going on and where the miscommunication lies. Usually, you find little points of contention or frustrations or anger, and you dwell on those or you talk trash to someone about those. Or God, I mean, we do this, and we talk to someone about, well, they did this, they said this, and if we can dwell in those small arguments, it can kind of unravel the whole. This is a really common practice in like media and pop culture. Uh, politics, I think our political structure basically rests on this. P- political campaigning nowadays basically rests on this area, right? It's, it's not so much about politicians uh, getting up, and, and I'm not making any statements about specific politicians here. Just in general, instead of them getting up and saying, here's what I'm for, here's my platform, here's what I can offer, it's more, well, did you hear what that person like, we found out what this person said when they were a teenager, or did when they were younger, or found this secret information about them. And, and what the hope is, is that if we can expose that one little crack, then to everyone it will create a crack in their entire character. I mean, personally, we do this, you know, it's like, you, you know, you get to a point where someone's frustrating you, maybe you're like in one of those like dramatic social media battles or something, and it's like, yeah, well, did you see their spelling? It's atrocious, you know? And as though that matters in the context of the frustration that you're feeling. Um, and I don't. I don't think it's probably the most particularly tactic uh, helpful tactic that we use. Uh, but I think it's age-old. It's been around for a long time. And what we're going to be looking at, we're going to be working through Mark 2, 18 to three six, covers some ground. Three interactions that Jesus has with some of his opponents, and this is basically their strategy. Thousands of years ago, same thing. Um, they're, they they would make great politics politicians nowadays. Maybe I sound like I don't have a lot of faith in uh, that type of a lobbying system, and you'd be right. I don't. Um, but they'd be, they'd, be, they'd be perfect candidates for that because what they show up and do in each of these three interactions is they show up and they, they observe like a little thing about Jesus and they try to publicly expose that thing, thinking if we can expose this one area of weakness, people will lose faith in him. People will say, oh, well, you know, Jesus, yeah, they're right. He doesn't do that or he does, that. he's like that. And so his whole character must be flawed, you know? Um, and so we're going to look at these three interactions and they're going to be kind of um, Based around two different topics, if you have the bulletin notes or you're using the FBC app notes, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, fasting and Sabbath in the context of these. It's hard. There's a lot going on in these interactions. It's hard to know exactly what direction to take it, but at the end, um, we're going to kind of arrive at some conclusions that I hope are helpful. One thing you're going to notice in all three of these interactions, three separate interactions, is that... uh, Remember, at the start of Mark, the very first Mark, the verse of the gospel, I'm struggling to say Mark two, so no worries, Doug, but the, uh, the very first verse of the gospel of Mark, Jesus, or I'm going to reset. Mark, has a hard word to say. Mark, uh, he, he exposes his theological premise. He's like, I'm writing this gospel because I believe that Jesus is the good news. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's divine. Basically, what Mark is letting us know through the 16-chapter story is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is sovereign and divine and above all, and he is the creator and ruler of everything. Jesus Christ, is, this is the bottom line of Mark, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're gonna see that in all three of these interactions. I know we just prayed, but one, before we dive into scripture, why don't you join, me, join with me as we pray. God, your word is alive and it's active and it digs into our souls and it changes us. As we dive into this, uh, this morning, God, I ask that your word would just change us from the inside out. Nothing but that. Don't let anything I say or that we think get in the way, but just change us through your words this morning. We love you, God. Amen. Starting off in Mark two eighteen, Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting yours or not. So these people come up, these opponents of Jesus. Jesus has a lot of opponents, and eventually they kind of pseudo-win, but uh, these opponents come up to Jesus and they say, oh, Jesus, uh, yeah, we notice that these guys are fasting and you're not. And so talk about a couple quick things in here really quickly. First of all, for those of you who don't know what fasting is, it's a pretty common term, but fasting is generally associated with, with going without food for kind of some set amount of time, just not, just not eating for, for a little while. Um, it, you can fast from other things. Like, I mean, people fast from stuff that isn't food. It's, it, it's just taking a time when you go without something that's inherently good. You can't fast from something that's inherently bad. That's just called not sinning. You can't be like, hey, I'm fasting from murder for a little while right now. Like, I've been doing that for 34 years. It hasn't really, I don't know if it's gotten me too much credit in God's books. But uh, it, it, it's something that's, like, inherently good. or it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not just not sinning. It's kind of taking a break from that. Now, fasting isn't just a Christian practice, and it's not even actually just a religious practice. It's practiced largely in religions and uh, different worldviews like that. Uh, But, I mean, it's practiced outside of that as well. And there are a lot of physiological benefits of it. Um, It's useful in other practices like preparing for a colonoscopy. I mean, that's not a spiritual practice, but people, well, maybe some people think it is weird. But, uh, you know, people fast for that. That's helpful. There are benefits like that. And there are lots of things, how it interacts with your mind to go without food for a while, or if if you let go of something for a while, how it just kind of deprives you of something to create some space for some healthy things to happen in your world. But in the context of Christianity, I think it's a really healthy and beneficial practice on a spiritual level, which to me is the most important. Now, it's interesting for me to be talking about this because, to, to be honest, just to be really clear with you guys, it's pretty hypocritical for me to be up here talking to you guys about fasting because, uh, you know, I'm really bad at it. And that's, like, the type of thing that you can, like, confess to another Christian. Like, I'm really bad at fasting. Like, oh, no worries. Let's, like, not fast together because, like, no, no one wants to fast, right? It's like, hey, like, you know, serve at FBC, do this, give my, And it's just like, okay, I, I could do those. Go without food for a couple of days. It's like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, at, it's, it's hard but it's no excuse just because it's hard. And it's kind of interesting because a little while ago, Talcy and I had been having this conversation, and this is just kind of my personal journey, but we've been having this conversation, and she's saying, you know, I feel like in some ways we've plateaued spiritually in our lives. Like, you know, we we grow, grow, you know, but we're at this place where things are good. Like, we're reading our Bibles, and we're involved in church and faith community, and we love Jesus, but we're we're just kind of like, it's easy to just kind of coast there, you know? you do that in a lot of relationships, and it's important to not do that with God. And So she brought up the idea of fasting, which I'm like, you know, you like love and hate when someone brings that up and you're like, oh yeah, like cool idea. You know, like how about you do it like double for both of us and we'll like, you know, tell me how it is. But so it had been on my mind and I was feeling convicted and challenged because I'm like, yeah, I don't really ever do that. And (laughs) <laughs> then Doug and I sat down and we started breaking up the Gospel of Mark in our weeks and stuff. I was like, sweet, I get to get up there and hypocritically talk about fasting. It's only one third though, so it's like only one third of hypocrisy this morning. So, um, but you know, it's an interesting practice. It's it's like it's not like it's commanded anywhere in the Bible. But what I've noticed is that when I fast on a spiritual level, I start to get. Like, I get hungry because I'm not eating, and, and you can fast from other things. So particularly when I fast from food, you start to get these hunger pangs, and they're always just such a good reminder to just slow down, spend some time praying, and say, hey, God, thanks that I usually have food, uh, but God, you're, you're all I need. And this is what I think about fasting. This is kind of my idea of fasting, is that when you surrender what you think you need, you gain sight of what you truly need. That when you give up something like food or something like that for a while, you begin to realize, God, you are my only, are my only one true need. I don't need water. I don't need food. I don't need all these things. I need you, God. And it's, a, it's just a humbling experience before God where you can just say, God, I desire you more than I desire the food that's in my fridge. That's, you kind of got to force yourself to say that sometimes, but it's a really cool practice. I'd encourage you. Um, it's funny talking about this. We're having the celebration lunch today. Stick around for that. And then after that, I'd encourage you to give it a shot sometime. It's really cool. So Jesus' opponents show up and they say, hey, these other guys are fasting. So who are they talking about? John's disciples. So John the Baptist, he's in prison now. We caught that in chapter one. He's saying they're fasting. Now, this is an interesting thing and this is gonna kind of come up later. The opponents of Jesus are probably not John the Baptist fans. Like, kind of same camp. So... uh, you know, Jesus, these guys are, like, using their own enemies as an example against their enemy. And this is a tactic that they'll do kind of again later. And, you know, they say, well, these guys are fasting. The Pharisees, we'll talk about the Pharisees in a few minutes. The Pharisees probably fasted twice a week. I mean, we often read the word Pharisees in the Bible and we're like, oh, what a bunch of losers. They probably fasted twice. These guys, yeah, there were some bad things about them. But, I mean, these props to these guys, f- twice a week? Like, man, you know, it's easy for me to judge someone when I read, but, like, it's pretty intense. But as they come and they say, hey, Jesus, these guys are doing this. What's wrong with your disciples? And this is where Jesus goes. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. So there's a lot going on here, and I'm, we have to cover some ground. But uh, So Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, you guys, the bridegroom is with the people right now. And so, for those of you who don't know, bridegroom really just means groom. I don't actually know why sometimes they say bridegroom or groom, but it means the husband in the marriage relationship. This would be common language to uh, for century Jews who are hearing this. B- basically they would understand in the Old Testament that the context of God and his people and their relationship was that of a marital relationship. There was this commitment and this unending love and faithfulness in that. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, what you'll hear a lot of times is when the people are being unfaithful, God says, you're being adulterous against me. You're cheating on me. You're prostituting yourselves out to, to sinful practices and to false gods. You're, you're, you're busting up our marriage. This isn't working for me. So when Jesus says, the bridegroom is come, he's not just saying, hey, you know, like, sweet dude. He's saying, God has arrived among his people. Like, talk about something that his opponents are gonna be inflamed about. Like, forget the fasting thing. He just said, I'm God. And so he's saying, you know, right now there's this wedding going on. It makes sense that John the Baptist's disciples are fasting because what was John's message in chapter one? John's message was, you guys need to repent. You're sinful, you're evil, you're struggling. with." It's not a fun message. It's not like, hey, you guys are sinful. It's like, you know, pop open like, you know, some food and some drinks and like, let's party. That's a great message. You know, this is a sombering message. And when you read Old Testament scripture, a lot of the times fasting is a response to a sombering message. Nehemiah in chapter one, he hears that his his homeland in Jerusalem is in ruins and the people are struggling there. So he fasts, he divests himself of of food. He weakens himself before God and bows down and says, God, like I'm emptying myself. I am in this somber realization. I'm in anguish. And I think that's... uh, (laughs) you know it makes so much sense john comes he's like we're sinful we need to be aware of our struggle as as humans with sin our humanity drags us into evil and selfishness and so they fast but jesus says you guys now the good news has come the bridegroom is the messiah the savior is here that bad news here's the answer and here's the solution and i'm going to solve that you know, you've been to a wedding you don't go to a wedding it's not like a somber moment. Well, it is for some guys who are like, oh, we're losing our bro. But, you know, it's it's not a somber thing. It's not like, oh, okay, do you take each other? You do? Okay, you know, play some sad, like, you know, funeral music. No, it's, it's a party. You know, you go. For me, if I go, especially if I buy you a wedding present, I'm going to cash in on as much food as I can. I'm going to get the cost of my present worth, you know? You're the one that spent thousands of dollars. I drop my 30 bucks, and I'm going to hit that buffet. I'm, like, filling my pockets with food. Like, take it out. Just me? Okay. Uh, so, I'm not the homeless guy at the wedding. I'm just that guy, I guess. But, you know, it's a party. And Jesus is saying, you you know, right now is this wedding feast. Dig in and enjoy that the bridegroom is dwelling amongst his people that he loves. He says there's going to come a time when the bridegroom will be taken from them. He starts to predict his death. He says right now is the wedding. Now is not the time to fast. But soon there's going to be a funeral. And that's going to be the time for you to have a somber realization of your desperate need for a savior. It's a big statement by Jesus. We, we gotta move on. I spent the whole morning there, but Jesus continues on. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. Have you ever left... Um, you know, like a flat of pop or a flat of like bottles of water outside in like the freezing cold, and then you're like, oh, we'll cool it down. And you forget, and I don't know if you've ever had this. Sometimes if it's so cold, they like they break, they burst, or you know, sometimes they don't burst, but they turn into like a you know, your pop can looks like a balloon or something like that. So the same thing happens when wine is fermenting. you pour it into wineskins, and as it ferments, it it expands. It's it's just this sciency thing, you know. And uh, I'm super smart. No, I learned it from Jesus, but. Um, And with new wineskins, they'll expand with it. But with old ones, they would break open because they've already expanded. They've stretched out. They're old. They're used. They're kind of set in their way. They're rigid. It's the same thing with this metaphor with, you know, clothes. When clothes have shrunk, uh, then if you sew sew a new piece of material on it and then it shrinks, it's not going to work very well. It's going to pull away and it's going to be a problem. I I don't, I've I've never sewn anything in my life, but I'm going to take Jesus' word for it there. this is a, the Bible is such a fascinating book, and as you read, you'll learn more and more, and I hope you you dig in and study, but you'll hit passages where you're like, this is is a hard passage to understand. This passage, I'll say, is kind of a hard teaching by Jesus, because I've read several commentaries that have very different ideas on it, so it's a little intimidating for me to kind of like talk about it, but I'm going to try to offer you what I think is something, hopefully, a helpful idea and interpretation of this morning. I've read different commentaries that have these kind of crazy allegorical ideas of like, this means, and just as a quick aside, as you study scripture, as you read, you'll come across things that are hard. I hope you don't just gloss past them and be like, I don't get it, whatever. Mark them down. Find someone that you think is smart. I mean, the internet exists nowadays. Just be a little careful on there. But like, you know, look for someone who can help you out with that. But as you read more and more scripture, things will start to make sense and kind of come together. But you'll still hit passages where you're like, this is tough. And you read different opinions. And even actually, I was reading a commentary by John Calvin this morning. And generally, if he says something and I disagree, I'd probably be like, well, he's probably right because that's a really smart old dead dude, you know? And so uh, he's a smart guy, but I'm going to take a bit of a different approach. And what I'll say is this, when you get to passages where it's complex and there are different ideas and stuff, be be wary of some of the more complex interpretations of that passage. This is what I mean. There are a lot of people out there who kind of offer big allegorical ideas or kind of Bible codes, like this number means this, and this number means this, and this is how the Bible works together. There's this crazy code. And what happens is, before the Reformation, one of the problems is, is that the Bible was chained to a pulpit in the church. So people had to come and hear from the one guy who would, who would tell them what God said, and, and the power rested in their hands. When you have a guy on TV who's, or, or on the internet who's offering these crazy Bible codes, and he's the only one who could ever understand or interpret Scripture— then we kind of end up with that kind of idea where this is chained there. And the scripture is for everyone. And I'm so thankful that in the Reformation, that's, that's what happened, is that we were given the opportunity to have this. So what I would say is this. If you're really struggling with the passage, find someone that you really trust and who you think is smart. But by default, I would generally encourage you to try to find kind of the simplest, most straightforward understanding of what it's saying that fits in well with the gospel. And this is, so I'm going to give you kind of my idea from this passage, and sorry, this is a long rant, but this is a, I I just, I I just feel like I don't want John Calvin rolling in his grave as I say something different than him, so um, it was destined to be that way. So anyways, uh, sorry, Calvinism joke. Okay, Um, so Jesus says, you've got these old stretched out wineskins, you've got this old shrunk garment. And I think in this context, the best understanding I can, the most helpful understanding I can look at is this. Is Jesus saying, I'm bringing a new teaching. What I'm bringing is something brand new. I'm not erasing the Old Testament, but I'm bringing this new covenant. It's this, it's this new wine. It's this new patch. He's like, if you try to fit that into the system, you, you guys are fasting. That's great. You guys have the system. You have these beliefs and you know who God is and that's great but you're rigid, you're old and you're shrunk or you're old and you're expanded and you don't have room to move. And following Jesus means being willing to move and to change and be stretched. And it is a stretching experience. So Jesus says, you can't just pour what I'm bringing, my new teachings, my new covenant into this old system that you have that you're rigidly holding on to. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he never offers that. He, what he says is he says, I'll give you a new wineskin. I'll make you new. If you read 2 Corinthians 5, this idea of being made new, Jesus says you're a new creation. And that he says, I'm going to give you a new wineskin. You don't have to keep that old stretched out thing. I'll give you a new cloth. You don't have to be that old shrunk garment. I'll make you new. And this is what I'll say about following Jesus. It's hard, but if you can't follow Jesus if you're unwilling to move. So, so he's saying to these guys, listen, it's great that you fast, but if that's what you're holding on to, I need to make you new. And you will fast, but you need to understand that you need to be made new by me in order to hold this new wine or this new... He's not just a new patch that he's going to sew onto your garment, however it fits in. He's not just going to fit into your life. Anyways, we've got to move on. Moving into this idea of the Sabbath in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, look, Why are they doing what is unlawful unlawful on the Sabbath? So a couple things going on here. First of all, the Sabbath, for those of you who don't know, it's this, in the Old Testament, part of the law, actually a large part of the law was keeping the Sabbath holy. It was a day of rest. It was the seventh day of the week was always set aside for rest. So Saturdays, set aside for rest. In Hebrew, Shabbat, that meant like don't work on that day, take it easy, don't even walk too much, chill. Just take a break. And We're going to come back to that idea a little bit more. So what happens is these guys named the Pharisees, they show up, and they're one of Jesus' great, greatest opponents in, in the text, is this people group called the Pharisees. They show up and they say, hey, Jesus, I noticed that your disciples are doing work. They're like reaping food. And this is kind of dicey territory because really if you study Old Testament law, you know, the idea was that we weren't supposed to, like, go out and, like, harvest and farm, like, but they're just picking a couple. So, you know, it's dicey territory, and Jesus really could take them, like, head on there. He could say, well, are they really? And he could argue there. But Jesus isn't petty. So Jesus doesn't stoop to their level and just argue the semantics. And this is who the Pharisees are. I want to talk about this for a second, because we're going to see them show up in the text more, and I want to create a little bit of an understanding for who they are. I actually sympathize with the Pharisees a lot, because the Pharisees, they were devout in what they believed. I mean they knew Old Testament scripture, and they tried really hard to live it out A lot of times the way i 've heard it be termed is that the pharisees problem is that they were just religious people that they practiced religion that's that 's often what i 've heard people say in the church and I, I might step on some toes here, but I, I want to challenge that idea a little bit because i don 't know if that 's the most helpful direction for us to head with this because often i 've heard people say well christianity isn 't a religion it 's a relationship and I, I'm going to push inside a little bit, and hopefully that, that's okay. The, the, the problem with the Pharisees isn't that they were religious. What religion means is it's a set of beliefs about the cause and nature of the universe. Basically, it's an understanding of who God is and how he's made the universe work. That's what religion is. That, that's not a bad thing. That the Christianity is, in fact, a religion. In fact, you can read in Scripture where religion is used in a positive way to describe, uh, describe Christianity. It, it's not... Religion and relationship aren't, like, opposed to each other. The the truth of this religious idea that God created the universe and wants to have a relationship with us, that all works together. Those are both true. I think it's easy for us to say, well, I'm not religious, and the Pharisees were religious, and and, and that's their problem. I actually think the Pharisees' problem is a lot more relatable to our context than we often give it credit for. The Pharisees' problem is that they were arrogant, and they were self-righteous. They had taken principles from Scripture— and use them to their own end to appear good and to make themselves feel good about themselves. I mean, how much is that a narrative of our North American church culture nowadays? We take some ideas, some teachings from scripture, and some phrases that we kind of think are in the Bible but aren't actually in the Bible, and we apply them to our lives and we're like, Well, if I join enough like, you know, school organizations or do these extracurriculars or do this thing or what then I'm good. If I if I shovel my neighbor's walk enough, if I do these things, if I show up at ch-. You can't make yourself righteous. And that's the Pharisees' problem, is that they're like trying to make themselves, they're so arrogant that they don't think that they need God's help. This is, this is my metaphor for the Pharisees. In scripture, uh, it, it talks about us being God's masterpiece, His handiwork. And I love that picture. And I often think about God just painting our lives into existence. And so, so I'm this canvas, and God is this master painter, and he, he shows up with this easel full of paints and all these colors. And he says, you know, I'm going to paint you into this masterpiece. The problem with the Pharisees, you know, isn't that they reject paint or whatever. But the problem is, is that in this context, the canvas looks at the painter and says, cool, leave the paints there. I'll paint myself. I'll turn myself into the masterpiece. But you can't do that outside of the artist. What what true relationship or pure religion in God means is to not be arrogant or self-righteous and understand that only God can get you there. And as a canvas to surrender and say, paint me however you want, God. And God says, you know, some green here, some red here, some long black flowing locks here, you know? That's a really beautiful picture. That's the problem with the Pharisees. It's not that they're religious. It's, the problem is that they're like us and that we think we can do it on our own so often and it's just not the way. So they say, hey, Jesus... By the way, we notice that your disciples are doing this thing that's kind of not that good, so they're trying to break in. Jesus doesn't go on their level, and this is a brilliant response. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? I want to stop there. Jesus saying, have you never read to the Pharisees? All the Pharisees did was studied Scripture and memorize it. They probably knew Scripture better than Jesus' disciples. Jesus saying, have you never read, isn't an honest question. This is Jesus saying, you guys are really dumb, and I'm about to show you how. It's actually like a really savage moment by Jesus here. I don't think I'm overstating that. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread which is lawful only for the priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. So Jesus basically turns the tables, and he says, you guys know David, right? He's like your guy's hero. One day the Messiah is going to come. These guys don't dare diss David. You can read this narrative. I'm not going to go into it too much. In 1 Samuel 21 and 22, it's a fascinating story. David shows up. He's running away from tyrannical Saul, who's trying to kill him, and uh, he shows up, and Actually, it's Abiathar's father, Ahimelech, who's actually the priest at that point. And Himelech, he's like, I need food. And Himelech's like, well, all I got is this, like, special bread. But it's, like, it's kind of like, it's like the communion wafers. You know, it's, like, it's special. It's just for this, you know. And and he was right. In Old Testament law, he was right. Like, this is, like, set aside for this purpose. And they have this conversation. And to, to be honest, David's kind of a little bit dishonest with him. But they have this conversation. And David says, listen, man, like, I'm hungry. I need food. And the priest, he's he's a good priest. He says, well, I'm not going to make someone starve over a rule. So he gives them bread. If you read the next chapter, Saul's really angry about that, finds out, and he comes and kills Ahimelech and his whole family, except Abiathar escapes. But really interesting story. You should read it. Jesus says, listen, man, these rules you're talking about, is it better for someone to starve following the rules rigidly, out of compulsion, or is God a God who brings life? And he accentuates that when he says this in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. This is like the original Saturdays are for the boys, you know? And he says the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is saying God didn't, like, make a bunch of laws and rules and then create people to, like, subject them to those. God created people, and because of their sinfulness, he created law and 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 rules and statutes and commands and said, guys, like, you guys got to, you need this. And we're going to come back to this idea of Sabbath a little bit later. But Jesus says, I'm the Lord even of the Sabbath. This is a big statement to his opponents. Let's continue on. Chapter three. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So Jesus walks into the synagogue. It's kind of like a church. And all these church people are around. And there's this guy with the shriveled hand. And check out what it says. It says, they watched him closely to see if he would heal him. Not if he could heal him. These people, this is fascinating. These are people who are so close to the gospel. They believe in Old Testament scripture, which is good. And they see the fulfillment of it, the gospel, in flesh right in front of them. And they even believe that he has the power to heal. Have you ever been so deep in an argument and you realize you're wrong, but you're so angry and frustrated that you just keep arguing and you won't admit it? We've all done that. You you, you just turn it to something else. Yeah, but you, you know, and we just won't let go. It's a really sad picture. That's where these guys are at. I mean, I, I feel like that's often like our churches, you know, it's like, we're so steeped in our own ideas of what makes sense that when we're confronted with the truth, even though we know it's right, we just are like, but I've taught this before. I've lived this before. I taught this to my kids. Let it go. It's hard. It's important. So Jesus, he knows their thoughts. He's God. He knows what they're thinking. And so, so he says, he says, yeah, get up here on stage, shriveled hand man. He's like, I, he probably didn't call him that, but he like, get up here on stage. We're going to make a show out of this. Probably not that like culturally appropriate nowadays to do that in front of everybody. Says stand up in front of everyone. Let's put this on display. Then Jesus asked them, "Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath: to do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill?" But they remained silent. See, so they put Jesus in this kind of like catch twenty two situation. They're watching Jesus in two options: either he heals the guy or he doesn't. If he doesn't heal the guy then they're like, well, either Jesus couldn't heal him, or Jesus chose to leave a guy with his shriveled hand. Brutal Jesus. This is not a Messiah. Or else, Jesus does heal him, and they can say, well, he did work on the Sabbath. Which is an interesting thing, because in the Old Testament law, just to be clear, there's no rule about not doing miraculous healings on the Sabbath, you know? Just wasn't part of their law. Probably didn't seem necessary at that time. And so they're watching him, and Jesus flips that catch-22 right back on them. He's like, well, you know, God's law, God's a good God, so on the Sabbath, is it better to do good or to do evil? And they know that they can't answer that. So they remain silent. Jesus is pretty good at winning arguments. It's interesting, though, because I feel like we still argue with him anyways. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn heart, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees are so angry that they go and find the Herodians. The Herodians are a a group of Hellenistic Jews. And what that means is Jews who have mixed Greek culture into their Judaism. Pharisees, not fans of them. They think that's gross. They think that's disgusting. But they don't care. They're like, enemy of my enemy, right? So they go and find their enemies. Like, let's figure out. they're, They're so, it's so sad. They're standing right there in the Gospels right there. But they just won't open their hearts. And they decide, let's go, let's kill this guy. This teaching is too hard. Jesus is Lord of all, and and they can't embrace that. I want to just take a few minutes to park on this idea of Sabbath for a bit, because it's actually been kind of a cool personal journey for me lately. I think what's happened a lot in churches And some of it is because we're such a biblically illiterate generation. But I think a lot of what's happened is that we've often had this divide where there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've come to believe that the Old Testament kind of doesn't apply anymore, and it's this different system. It's kind of a different God. And the New Testament here comes like this nice Jesus who changes things. And we read Old Testament law, and we're like, man, it's just brutal. Like God is this capricious God who just wants to prevent his creation, his kids from like enjoying and embracing life. And I'm really sorry if you've ever been taught that kind of mentality. Or I'm sorry that if you've been led, I'm sorry if you've been led into that kind of mentality if you've arrived there. Because I, I think that's a really unfortunate understanding of who God is. The Bible is this biography of God's character. It's his character on display, whether that's through his law in the Old Testament or through the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, God is the same God with this heart of compassion and love that wants what's best for his creation. But we so often think, well, God's law says don't do this and don't do this and prevents us from doing this and give this up. And we look at it in a really negative, kind of limiting way. So here's kind of an example, I think, of how we, we look at it. A lot of times we're like, well, you shouldn't like say these words, you shouldn't say mean things, or you shouldn't gossip. Why do we focus on the shouldn't rather than saying God isn't a God who's just against a bunch of stuff, but God is a God who's for us and he's for a bunch of things. So we shouldn't gossip, we shouldn't say these mean things. Say so we should use our words to bring life, to encourage and to offer love. Even like we shouldn't hurt people, we shouldn't murder. That's right. But why don't we just say we should love people and we should bless people and we should give to people and we should encourage people. I think on one side is this understanding that we've arrived at of Jesus's, that it gets in the way of our life and it's like limiting to us. And I just think that's a really unfortunate view. I love in uh, Mark 2, uh, 27, where Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not, the man for, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus says, we like I created people and then I gave them this gift of Sabbath. And he says, the Sabbath is about doing good, not evil. It's not about preventing you from, I mean, think about this teaching. It's not a limiting, I've often thought about the Sabbath as, as limit, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath. <laughs> what a great teaching. Take a nap, chill out. Yeah, take a, that's a good, now that we've had a kid, that's like my favorite teaching in the Bible, you know? Chill, I'm like, I should send the baby away every like seventh day. Now, I'm in no way teaching that we need to revert to an Old Testament system where we're like every Saturday, you know, like Friday at whatever, uh, sundown to Saturday at sundown, we, you know, all these rules and stuff like that. But I really think there's a better way that we can lean into God's law and God's teaching because this is what I really believe about God's law, is that God's law doesn't stifle life, it enhances life. Whether you're talking about God's law in the Old Testament or Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, God gives us life and then offers us ways and steps that we can enhance that life and experience a full life. I'm going to wrap up pretty quickly, but I want to I say this. I'm sure a lot of you have gotten photo radar tickets, right? And uh, so, Or some of you don't have your licenses, but there are two types of people, licensed people who have gotten photo radars and then, or, or maybe you're like, no, I haven't, and you just Lying to your wife and secretly paid it without her knowing, but uh, that's a bad idea, okay? Um, so last weekend, I went to Youthquake with our youth, and kind of like, I don't know if this is awkward to say for a bunch of parents, but uh, we, we went to Youthquake down in Karenport, Saskatchewan, and on the, I think the Wednesday night, it's like 11.30 at night, and we're like, we need to go to McDonald's in Moose Jaw, um, very important mission, and so we hop in the van, we're driving down the highway, and all of a sudden I see the sign that says, uh, 80 kilometers an hour with, like, the arrow, so I'm like, oh, soon it's going to turn to 80 kilometers an hour, and I'm thinking, yeah, it's going to turn to 80, but, like, I'll get there, you know, and, uh, you know, like, there's, it's 1130 at night, there's no, it's the middle of Saskatchewan, there's no one on the highway, like, it's, it's all good, right, so I'm driving and just chatting with the guys, and all of a sudden, it's like this supernova explodes behind the van, like, just this bright, like, they should chill out the flash on that thing, but this bright flash of light, it's like lightning hit the back of our van, and, and I'm like, oh, guys, I think I just got a photo radar. And they're like, yeah. They're like, didn't you see the sign saying that this is, like, photo radar patrolled? And I was like, uh, no. Like, I was texting while I was driving. No, i was kidding. <laughs> I was watching a movie. No, uh, so. But I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> Obviously, I missed that. And it's easy to be like, oh, man, this is so dumb. Like, I know how to drive the right speed limit and stuff like that. And, I mean, and to be honest, like, sometimes I feel, like, <laughs> for, you know those, like, new, the new, like, playground zone law in lloyd Minster like, right? Like, it's like Sunday evening in the middle of the summer. And we Okay, anyways, yeah, you, there's my opinion. But it's crazy. Anyways, but this these laws exist because people die in car crashes, right? People get hurt in car crashes. And, and these laws exist to say, hey, you know what? Like, let's try to minimize that. Let's try to minimize the damage out there. And let's try to, like, you know, stay alive on the road, It's actually a good thing. It's it's not really a limiting thing, but it's actually a helpful thing. And I'm thankful for laws like that. In November, I took this Pentateuch class. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy is the Pentateuch, if you don't know. And uh, we arrived in Exodus 20 where the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments exists. And I've read before where it says keep the Sabbath holy, but something, since we're going slowly through it, something stood out to me that it, it isn't just keep the Sabbath holy and rest, but it's like, do that. Also make sure that your daughter and your son Your female slave, your male slave, your animals, foreigners living with you. Get everyone to rest. And as we continue to read, there's a lot about Sabbath. And I've never noticed how much there is about Sabbath in these books. And God says, you know, farmers, like, this is a farming culture there. It's like, every seventh year, don't even farm. Give the land a break. Farmers in the room right now are like, what? That's crazy. Um, But he's saying, chill out. Take a break. And I've often viewed that as a limiting thing. But it struck me when we got to Deuteronomy 4 and the Decalogue appears again and God says, take a Sabbath because I freed you from the oppression of the Egyptians. You were oppressed and in slavery. And I realized that what the Sabbath is about is God saying, you've been oppressed, so don't oppress yourselves. Don't exploit yourselves. Take a nap. In Exodus 20, what it says is, you know, in the same way, God took a Sabbath when he created the earth. He created in six days and then he took this cosmic nap. It was probably like the best sleep Ever. What a great commandment. Chill, take a nap, relax, don't exploit yourselves. I've been processing it a lot. And again, I'm not going to go to like a rigid Saturdays type system or something like that, but I've been processing that a lot because now that we have a baby, I realize Towsie and I, we work hard and we pride ourselves on. It. We're like borderline workaholics. And I realize God's saying, I'm not trying to stop you from doing so- stuff, I'm trying to stop you from hurting yourself. I'm saying, don't exploit yourself. Don't exploit your kids. And this is just the Sabbath, and I've been processing that, and I hope you guys will lean into that a bit. But I think this is, should be a, a helpful approach when we hear the teachings of Jesus and the, the laws of God in the Old Testament, that it's not, well, what's he trying to keep us from? But, but how is God trying to enhance the life that he gave us in the first place? He's a good, good God. And we should be so thankful for that. And I hope that you can lean into Jesus' teachings and to God's laws.